preached. Let's take our Bibles this evening to Luke chapter number 14. Luke 14, it's good to see Andres in the service this evening. Andres is a product of our bus ministry. Uh, Pastor Pezlak actually knocked on your door, didn't he? And I got you to come to church and had a lot to do with you being here and getting here and uh, seeing you grow up in the Lord. So, uh, Brother Andres and Miss Hope, they're a big part of our church's uh, children's program there. And so, so grateful for them. Bus ministry works. Luke 14. We're going to read from 15 down through 24, and then um, we'll get into the message. Let's stand, if we can, for the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, verse 15. This is where we'll begin. We'll read down through verse 24. The Bible says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And sent his servants at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. The title of the message this evening is this, In the Service of the King. Let's pray. God, help us tonight as we look at these uh, verses of Scripture, a passage that uh, many churchgoers are very, very familiar with. But Lord, some important truths that we can gain and glean and grow from. And so Lord, help us tonight to be focused in on your word. Help us to get from it what you'd have in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to begin my message this evening with an illustration I used way back in 2016. Some of you that have been here through my entire pastorate may remember this illustration, but for most of you, uh, this will be uh, this will be new new material here. Uh, Billy Graham. Billy Graham is a polarizing character. All right, we got a picture of Billy we can throw up there. Coming up in a moment. Okay, Billy Graham. Uh, if you are a Christian, you know who Billy Graham is. Either that or you've been living under a rock. Um, I think I asked this back in 2016, but how many of you were saved either directly or indirectly through the ministry of Billy Graham? Would you hold up your hand? All right. When I asked that in 2016, there were a lot more hands. We had one hand in the back. I think it was about a third of the auditorium back in 2016. Billy Graham, uh, let's see here. According to those who have done estimates... Billy Graham preached to over 2.2 billion people in his lifetime. He preached the gospel to over 2.2 billion people. Here's a picture of Billy preaching in Seoul, South Korea from May 30th to June 3rd. He preached to an estimated 3.2 million people in those four days. 3.2 million people came to hear him preach. And uh, Billy Graham has probably done more to preach the gospel 
around the globe than any other human being that's ever lived. Now, again, I don't endorse or agree with everything from his ministry, but um, when, when Jesus said, greater works than these shall ye do, you have to think that Jesus was looking ahead to a time where someone like a Billy Graham would preach. Jesus never preached to crowds this size. Uh, preached to crowds like this, all right? So what is his backstory? Well, before Billy Graham was known by that name, he went by Billy Frank. And um, the story goes, as Billy Graham tells it, that there was a preacher by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham had rented a hearse and had used it as a way of advertising his preaching meetings in the town of Charlotte, North Carolina. Young Billy refused to go to the meetings. He had no interest in going. And back then, you know, you'd have a, a crusade or a preaching service that would last a week or two weeks and sometimes even a month. And so this had been going on a while, and Billy had no interest in going. Word was getting around town. One day, a group of teenagers decided to go and disrupt the meeting. And Billy got word that they were going to go and cause havoc and disrupt and cause problems. And so he didn't want to go hear Mordecai preach, but he did want to go see the commotion. And so he went, and that night, God got hold of his heart through the preaching of Mordecai Ham, and young Billy got saved. Young Billy got saved. Well, you ask, well, what about Mordecai Ham? How did he get saved? Well, Mordecai's testimony is that he was raised in a Christian home, but it, it has been said that Evangelist Ham made his decision to trust Christ while attending a Billy Sunday crusade. So, Billy Sunday went all over the place preaching. They used to actually print his uh, sermons on the front page of American famous American newspapers. I saw once uh, a, a, a front of the Baltimore Sun that had... Uh, front cover had a picture of the crusade and his sermon was printed on the front of the Baltimore Sun. That was commonplace. That would happen most places that he went. Now if you want to see a sermon printed on the front of the newspapers, you got to get like the sword of the Lord or something like that. Uh, it just doesn't happen on the front of an American newspaper. Well, you say, well, what about Billy? How did he get saved? Well, Billy Sunday was at one time a professional baseball player. I believe he played for the Chicago Cubs, one of the Chicago teams. Billy was known for his speed on the base, base, base paths. He stole a lot of bases, but one day, uh, Mr. Sunday had a problem. He was a drunk, and one night he stumbled into the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission. How many of you have ever listened to those radio, old radio program uh, shows, uh, let's see, Unshackled? You know Unshackled? That's recorded through uh, Pacific Garden Rescue Mission. Well, he was drunk one night, and while being a baseball player, he stumbled in to the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission, and there was a guest speaker that evening, and the name of that guest speaker was Wilbur Chapman. And Wilbur Chapman preached a salvation sermon, and Billy Sunday trusted Christ. Billy Sunday quit baseball, and he joined Wilbur Chapman's team, where he would become an evangelist and would go on to see many, many thousands of of people come to Christ. Well, what about Wilbur Chapman? How did he get saved? Wilbur Chapman was led to Christ and influenced for Christ uh, for Christian service by none other than D.L. Moody. 
D.L. Moody. So watch this. D.L. Moody, 10,000 plus conversions in his lifetime. And these numbers are conservative, okay? One of those was Wilbur Chapman. He had 5,000 conversions. And one of those was Billy Sunday. He saw over 10,000 conversions. One of those was Mordecai Ham, who would end up leading Billy Graham, who saw well over a million conversions. That's an all-star lineup of old preachers. One who saw the other saved. Well, what about D.L. Moody? How did D.L. Moody get saved? I don't have a picture of the man that led D.L. Moody to the Lord because he was just a Sunday school teacher, an introverted little Sunday school teacher in the Boston area. His name is Edward Kimbrell. Now, you've never, unless you've heard the illustration, you don't know who Edward Kimbrell is. Edward Kimball, as the story goes, paced outside on the sidewalk. And I've been to the place where D.L. Moody got saved. There's a plaque in Boston uh, on the wall where uh, it, it took place, or rather, right, where D.L. Moody got saved. And um, Edward Kimball worked up the courage, and he went in, and he uh, was able to get little D.L. Moody to take a break from his working in a shoe shop, and he led him to Christ. Now, you may not be a Billy Graham, you may never be a Mordecai Ham or a Billy Sunday, or a Wilbur Chapman or a D.L. Moody. You may be an Edward Kimball. You may be introverted. You may, you may be intimidated uh, to share the gospel with others. But Billy, Sun, Billy Graham very well may have never preached to millions had Edward Kimball not worked up the courage to witness to D.L. Moody. Now, could have God worked all that out without Edward Kimball? God can do anything he wants. But isn't it interesting that that's how it works? Now, I want to make this point. God did not need Edward Kimball to start this chain. But Edward Kimball in heaven is going to have all of that fruit laid to his account. I believe that every Christian, every Christian, has been commissioned by the Savior to evangelize the world around them. We have a duty and we have a responsibility to share our faith. And tonight we're going to look uh, at Luke 14 and see our role in this passage as servants of our Master, Jesus Christ. Let's jump in tonight. Let me give you the outline. Point number one, notice the character of the Master. The character of of the Master. Look at Luke 14 and look at verse number 15. Luke 14 and verse 15. The Bible says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. So there's no question that this uh, is being tied back to the kingdom of God in heaven. There's no question that this is being tied back to the master in this parable being a picture of God in heaven. All right, letter A, notice his preparation. Speaking of the master preparing this great feast in heaven, notice his preparation. Um, we know that Jesus is in heaven operating as a project manager, right? He is the ultimate uh, uh, sub, let's see, he's the ultimate construction 
what do you call the guy, that, the general contractor. There it is. Brother Vara, I, I need your head in my head right now. Amen? Uh, he's the great general contractor in heaven, and he's overseeing the dwelling places that are in heaven. Someone picks on the word mansions in John 14 and say, that doesn't mean uh, great big house. And uh, the word mansion there is the root word monet, which money um, the idea of, of dwelling richly. And listen, any dwelling place in heaven, uh, regardless of its size, is better than any dwelling place on earth because you're living in a home in the presence of where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords resides. We don't have to get into the particulars of does it have 18 bedrooms or two bedrooms. That is irrelevant. Where it is is what matters. Jesus is in heaven and He's making final preparations for us to inhabit heaven. Now, uh, to those who've already received Christ as your Savior, let me remind you that, uh, that although you cannot see it with your physical eyes, God the Son is hard at work in heaven making the final preparation for those who have trusted Christ to make their entrance and move into their dwelling place or their mansion. Do you know the anticipation that is felt when you have worked hard to prepare your house for company? Uh, you, you know, as the clock ticks closer to the hour of arrival of your company, you have worked hard to scrub and clean the home and sweep out the dust of all the corners and make sure that the center place is just, centerpiece is just right on the table and make sure the carpet uh, in the in the in the uh, in the living room is is straightened up and the floors are vacuumed and everything's clean and 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 the odor in the place is just right and you, you got the right just the right candles lit and you've made sure the bathroom's in order you've gone through the house and made sure everything's just right and as the clock ticks toward the time that the company is going to arrive, there is an anticipation and a growing excitement of the arrival of your company. Now, we don't know when Christ will return for His church, but His Father does. His Father knows, and He is anxiously awaiting His Father to give Him the command to say, Hey, son, go get your bride, go down to the sky, and blow the trumpet, and call them on up here. The final preparations are being made for the great feasts in heaven, uh, where uh, the kingdom of God will be fully enjoyed by those who are saved. We see letter A is preparation. Letter B, we see His perfect will. His perfect will. To those who believe that Christ only selects a pre-chosen few to go to heaven, I want to ask you this, all right? Why then, in this parable, which is clearly about the kingdom of heaven, it is stated at the beginning by Jesus in His parable that this is about the kingdom of heaven, why then in this parable is the offer made to those who will then turn it down? He makes the offer to those who will turn it down. Why even extend the offer if God only selects a few chosen to go to heaven? Clearly those in this chapter who do not end up at the feast or will not make it into heaven are those who receive the offer and of their own free will shut down the offer. Now the analogy here is of the great supper in the kingdom of heaven. Clearly the Lord of the meal in heaven is God. God sends His servants to those who then of their own free will turn down the invitation and do not go to the feast. God's salvation is offered to all. Even those who God knows will refuse it, yet God's perfect will is for everyone, everyone to come 
to this great supper. Now, God is not a respecter of persons. God's hope is that all will accept His invitation, and God is heartbroken over the denial of even one person who does not show up to the feast. I'll take it up a step. God is not only heartbroken, God becomes angry over those who do not come to His great supper. Why? Because He put Jesus on the cross to pay the, uh, to pay the entry fee to get them in, and when they shut down uh, heaven, they shut down that invitation, they're rejecting the work of Christ on the cross on their behalf. So we see the perfect will of the Master here is that all come to the supper. Letter C, we see His personal effort. His personal effort. Now, at the end of verse 16, we see uh, that it says right there, it says this, and bade many, and bade many. Christ makes a personal effort into people's lives to see that they make it to heaven. He wants each and every one uh, to come. God so loved the cosmos, uh, mankind, the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, whosoever, whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. You may be here tonight and you may wonder why you have not, uh, why you have been through so much hurt and disappointment in your life. Could it be that God is trying to grab hold of your attention so that you will invite Him into your life and you'll continue to, to stop pushing against? Uh, I think of Paul who went through so much inner conviction and turmoil. And uh, when Jesus finally did get him uh, to believe, uh, He said to him, it is hard for me to, uh, to, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Hey, I've been convicting. I've been pushing. I've been prodding. And you've been denying. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The larger point here to those who are servants of the King of Kings is this. God is doing His part in the hearts and lives of those around you to bring them to salvation. He wants all to come. Now He has given us a job. Number one, uh, we see the character of the Master. He is willing. He is not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He's not willing that any should miss the feast. He wants all to be at the great supper in heaven. Number two, notice the commission of the servants. The commission of the servants. Look at Luke 14 and look with me at verse number 17. The Bible says, And sent his servants at supper time and say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. The servants were given a direct order. Look here to leave the comfort of the palace and to go out and find people to attend the banquet. Uh, to attend the banquet. And so the master looks at his servants and he says, it's time for you to leave uh, the banquet hall. It's time for you to head on out into the fields and the byways and the highways and find people and get them to the banquet. And there is coming a day when the banquet in heaven will take place and no more invitations will be given out. Those who accepted the invitation and have accepted Christ by faith will attend. Those who haven't will be condemned to eternal damnation. While God is doing a work in their heart uh, to prepare them for salvation, He needs your feet to go. He needs your lips to share. First Peter 3, verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You have been commissioned, and I want to ask you this question tonight. 
Are you doing your part? Are you doing your part? The, the Master has said to all of His servants, hey, it's time for you to leave the banquet hall. It's time for you to get out in the fields and invite people to come into My kingdom and to come to My dinner. Number one, we see the character of the Master. Number two, the commission of the servants. Number three, notice the calloused hearts of many. The calloused hearts of many. Look at four, Luke 14 with me and look at verse number 18. The Bible says, And they all with one consent to be, begin to make excuse the first set of them I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. One reason why many Christians don't share their faith is because of the, the rejection they fear. On a regular basis, I go out into the Stratford area and I invite people to church. And can I tell you that there are some areas of Stratford that are easier to knock doors in than others. All right? Um, If you go, let's see, if you go down into Paradise Green, I would say that's about a medium area to knock doors. Okay? If you are uh, down near the Bridgeport line, that's easy to knock doors and, and witness and give people the gospel. But boy, you knock doors in this neighborhood. Number one, the, the roads are windy and up and down and the driveways are long, right? Uh, I know, I've knocked on, I think, on every door in this neighborhood. But you go knocking doors in this neighborhood and on top of the terrain, people just aren't real interested in what we're talking about. How about lordship? Anybody here, anybody here ever going door knocking in lordship? Um, wow. Okay, this area is easier than lordship. I don't know that I've ever even gotten past hello in lordship with anybody, ever, all right? Um, I remember I went out soul winning with Zach Dillon in lordship some time ago, and we saw a, a home that had an American flag and, you know, something about military and, you know, like full-blown American, and Zach said, oh, this is going to be good, you know, that we should be able to make a connection. We knocked on the door. The guy could not have been more rude. Pretty much get off my property or I'll call the police. And we went down a few doors and there was uh, someone flying an LGBT flag on their porch and one of those, you know, signs that pay homage to all of the progressive left's belief. Love is love, you know, science is real, all that stuff. And Zach said, oh, I want to see how you're going to handle this one. (laughs) I knocked on the door and... We got further with that person than we did anybody else that day, which still wasn't very far, but at least we had a pleasant conversation. And they, they were accepting to who we were and at least engaged with us for a few minutes. But there in Lordship, uh, people have a heart that I would describe as calloused. They're calloused. Why? Life has calloused their heart. Now, some of them have shut out religion because they see it as phony, all right? Someone asked me um, recently, they said, why are so few people in our country going to church? And here's what I told them. I said, before I go blaming the culture and Hollywood, I'm going to take a half a step back and I'm going to blame preachers. Preachers i got to tell you, if I got up this morning and I went to the average church in Stratford, 
I probably would never, ever want to go back to church again in my life. It's just formalism. It's dead ceremonialism. You know, I've sat in Baptist churches and thought, what is he even talking about up there? And if we're not going to take a book that is practical and, 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 and right where people live and articulate it in a way that will help them go forth and live, we're not selling Christ very well at churches across this country, and so people are not interested in going to church. I can't tell you how many people have walked through the door of our church and said, you know what, I gave up on church when I turned 18 and my parents quit making me go. I went to this particular church in town. Usually it's Catholic, not always Catholic. And, uh, it was uh, just they drug me there. I hated it, and, and I just would count the, you know, the, uh, the uh, stained glass windows in the room, or I'd look to see how many light bulbs are out, and I didn't get anything out of it. I turn 18, I said, I ain't going anymore. This is boring. This is boring. I can't tell you how many people I've met out in the community that says, I'm not going back to church. Church is filled with phonies. Some people are callous in their heart because they just see that uh, religion is filled with phonies. And some of them have shut God and have a callous heart. They've shut God out uh, because in their limited understanding, they feel like in some way God let them down. Some of them reject the gospel because... They just flat out don't want to face up to their sinful lifestyle. Why would I admit there's a God? That means I have to quit living like this. There's a guy on the internet that goes around and he confronts people. And um, he's got a camera and shows up at a park and just starts talking to people about the gospel. I don't agree with all of his tactics, but I I was watching one of these videos and uh, he got the guy to admit that he was a lying, adulterous uh, cheating, blaspheming, um, uh, murder at heart. All right, just got him to just got him to admit that he had broken all these, either the, the letter of the law, or the spirit of the law, with all these commandments. And then he asked him a question. He said, "Are you addicted to pornography?" And the guy looked at him and said, "Yeah." He said, "You told me at the beginning that you're an atheist, right?" He said, "That's correct." He said, "I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to take a guess. You're an atheist because." you don't want to admit that what you're doing is wrong because that means you would have to face God one day. And the guy said, you're 100% correct. I give the guy credit for on camera admitting it. Now, maybe the whole thing was staged. I don't know, okay? I I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's where a lot of people are. They're living such a simple lifestyle, it becomes very easy to just dismiss that God exists. I don't want to talk to somebody about Jesus because then I I would have to change who I am. Sin makes us hard toward the truth. Let me just say that God has not called you to see results. Let me say it again. God has not called you to see results. He's called you to be faithful. He's called you to be faithful. We're too result-oriented when we go out soul winning. Too result-oriented. Well, I've gone out for three months and I've not led anybody to Christ. I think I'm going to quit. You know, God is not going to... Watch this now. Hear what I'm about to say. When we get to heaven, God is not going to line us up in order of the person who saw the most saved to the least saved. It's not going to be Billy Graham here and, you know, some Christian schmuck at the end of the line down here. It's not going to be like, oh, he saw the most saved, they saw the least saved. You know how God is going to judge us when we get to heaven? These here, they were faithful for a lifetime to share the gospel. It's not about how many you saw saved. It's how faithful you were in sharing. 
It's how consistent you were at passing out that gospel tract. It's how faithful you were to stop and ask a waiter or a waitress, hey, is there something I can pray for you about? Is there some way I can be a help to you? Hey, let me encourage you in the Lord uh, right now. Uh, God wants to know this. Are you faithful? Uh, there are people out there, their hearts are hardened, and you're going to give them the gospel, and they're not going to listen. Look at Luke 14, verse 21. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. What things? Well, they had gone out and they invited three different people and all three people had an excuse why they couldn't come to the, to, to the banquet. And they came and they showed the Lord these things. And the master of the, of the house being angry, look there, being angry, uh, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Notice he was not angry at the servants, but rather at those who turned down the invitation. You go out soul winning and you, you, you give the gospel. You go out soul winning and you pass out tracts. You go out soul winning and you're a witness and you don't see anybody get saved. God is not angry at you. He's angry at those who were witness to and turned down the gospel. Sometimes I think that we, you know, see a, a soul winner in our church who's just thriving and doing well and yeah, saw this one saved, and she saw that one saved. He saw this one saved. Man, every week she's getting one, and every week he's getting one. And man, I can't keep up with that. Quit comparing yourself to others. Are you faithful in preaching the gospel? Are you faithful in sharing uh, the, 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 the gospel witness? Now, I, I want to just say this before I move on to number three. While we're not called to get results... We are called to be the very best we can be at giving the gospel. You don't get to go, well, you know what, the results are up to God, so it doesn't really matter what my tactics are or how I do this. Your tactics matter. You need to be good at sharing your faith. 1 Peter 3, again, says that you need to know how to give an answer to any man that asketh of the hope that lieth within you. You need to know how to articulate what you believe. And you need to be able to walk someone down uh, the, 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 the logic of salvation. And you need to aim your message at their head and let the Spirit of God convict their heart. And you bring them to a point of decision where they can be saved. It's not enough to say, well, I, I, you know what, I went out and that's it. No, no, no. We need to be, do our very best. The callous hearts of many, the character of the master, number three, notice the crowd that will come. The crowd that will come. Look at Luke 14. Look at verse number 21. The Bible says, So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city. Go in hither, uh, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Now notice here the heart of the Master, the heart of God, is that heaven be full. Heaven be full. Notice that for heaven to be full, the servants must go out and proclaim the Gospel. This idea of, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody tonight, okay? Uh, this is the text. We, I, I picked to preach. These things are in here. I just feel it's important I address it. This idea that God has already pre-selected those who are going to go to heaven and the rest have been pre-selected to endure the wrath of God and go to hell, that does not fit the narrative of what Jesus is teaching here. 
Jesus is teaching here that I want everyone to come to heaven and I want my house to be full. I sent you out and invited people and they of their own free will shut it down and said no. That made God angry because He prepared the dinner for them and they did not, uh, God did not choose for them not to come to the dinner. They chose to not come to the dinner. And God said, fine, if those are going to reject, then you go out and you find other people and you get them here. And so they go out and they get all all the nursing home people they can and they get all the homeless people they can and they get all the hospitalized people uh, that they can and they bring them in and then they go and say, all right, we got guests here, but there's still room. And the master says, then go back out again and find more people and bring them in. Why? The master's heart is that the banquet hall be full. And the banquet hall is a picture of what? The kingdom of God. Go back to the beginning of the story. God's heart is is that as many people possible make it into heaven. Now, the crowd that will come, letter A, notice the poor. The poor. This morning we talked about poverty. This morning we talked about those that live below the poverty line. Many that are stuck in a cycle of great futility and struggle. I have found... I have found it far easier to give the gospel in Bridgeport than Lordship. I just have. About three weeks ago on a Saturday, my wife and I went out visiting her bus route together. She didn't have a soul winning partner. I think it was lined up to go with Brother Syrette. And I said to Brother Syrette, I said, no, you know, I'm going to let you go over here with this individual and, and I, I'm going to go with my wife. I don't want her going into Bridgeport by herself and we got down in there and we're making some visits. And lo and behold, this guy comes thumping down the street listening to the most vulgar music. I mean the most explicit vulgar music. And uh, looked like he was looking for someone to grab and hurt. I mean, the guy looked like he could have been the maniac of Gadara from our I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. He was a rough customer. Lo and behold, we came down off of that uh, porch and onto that sidewalk right when he was coming by. And I looked at Angela I said, it's a good thing you weren't here by yourself. It's a good thing I was here with you. I could have God protected her. Of course he could have. But boy, I sure was glad I was there with my wife. We walked down the street and we went to make another visit. And we walked across the street to a lady who's come a couple of times. And there's a man sitting on the porch there with a bottle of whiskey in his hand. Already 10 o'clock in the morning. Only 10 o'clock in the morning he was already drunk. We were not there to visit him. My wife had talked to him many times. I think some of the ladies in our church have also talked to him. We were there to visit, I believe, his granddaughter, who was a young mother in her early 20s. Talked to her, and he said, Hey, come over here. So I walked over to him, and we began to speak to each other, and I could see he was very broken inside. I could see that that alcohol was just meant to cover a very, very broken man. Unfortunately, he was too drunk for me to be able to rationally give the gospel to. He said to me, he said, I want to come to your church tomorrow. I told him, I said, I would love to have you come. He said, if I can put this bottle down tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up. And I'm going to come to church. I prayed that night he would come. He did not come. 
As I walk around the streets of Bridgeport, I find it easy to give people the gospel because people are hurting. But do you know it does not require someone to be poor in dollars and cents to listen to the gospel. What it requires is that they be poor in pride. Poor in pride. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not about being poor financially. It's about being poor in pride. I remember back when the wall fell in Berlin. Communism. USSR ceased to be and Russia came in to existence. I remember hearing stories and seeing videos of missionaries who would go for the first time the Bible was allowed to be distributed in Russia. They would open up boxes of, of Bibles and people would flock into the Bibles and they would clear out a box just as instant as it was open and you could see the people taking the Bible and cherishing it as they walked away, clasping it to their chest and kissing it because they had been kept from the Word of God. They were poor in spirit and because of that they could have salvation. My friend, salvation isn't just for a select few that God chooses. Salvation are for those who are poor in their spirit. Humble yourself in the sight of God. He will lift you up. I don't know who in your family today is poor in their spirit and needs Jesus. Let me just say right now that when someone is riding high in their life and they've got everything going for them, they're very hard to witness to. If someone goes through a personal tragedy, and they're the type of person that you can lead to the Lord. One more illustration before I move on to letter B. I remember when I was in Maryland working as an assistant pastor I was the children's director, children's pastor over that ministry. And the only role I had with the youth group, the 7th through 12th grade, was I ran teen soul winning. That was my responsibility. Every Wednesday when the Christian school let out, uh, they'd come over and I would train them how to go soul winning. And then I'd put them in a bus and I'd take them on out. And uh, there was a man there who would select the neighborhoods for me. And we'd hand out maps and we'd get the teens all coordinated and out there. And 30, 40 teenagers out knocking doors. And uh, that was what I was in charge of. I remember he printed out maps and it was for this really, really, really high-end neighborhood with homes that bordered a golf course. I mean homes that were a million and a half plus. Homes that were spread out on this long street, down a long driveway with, you know, lights that are in the south. Sort of what you'd see like in a New Canaan or a Westport. And I remember looking there at uh, uh, Thomas Berg, the uh, gentleman who picked out the streets, and I said, what would you pick this neighborhood for? These people aren't going to listen to us. And he said, they need Jesus too. I said, all right, let's do it. So we go and... Our pastor's daughter, Bethany King, and her soul-winning partner, and they, got, got on, they, they were at a house for a long time. They got on the bus and they said, you won't believe what just happened. I said, what's that? They said, we walked down this long driveway, this big, huge house, and these doors that hurt when you knock on them. You know the ones with the really thick kind of doors? And she said, we, it was cold out. She said, we knocked on the door and we waited. And, and this guy, very well-dressed, he came out and he slipped on the sidewalk. He said, what can I do for you ladies? And they said, we're from, and they said the name of the church, and uh, we're here to give you an invitation. And he 
calmly took it and he said, thank you. And they said, well, let me ask you one more question. If you died today, are you 100% that you'd go to heaven? And this man, who was very wealthy, began to weep. He said this, he said, my wife just died last week. And I'm searching right now for answers. They stood there on that porch and for the next 40 minutes, they ministered to him and gave him the gospel. That man was not poor in money, but he was poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. When God brings people along your path, you don't know whether they're rich or poor but you, financially, but you can know if they're poor in spirit through just a simple conversation. And you begin to go into the gospel because they're now ready. Matthew 5, 3, we see blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice letter B, and we see letter A, the poor, letter B, notice the crippled. The crippled. Look at verse number 20. When he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke 5, verse 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. This is where we get the idea of Jesus saying, it's not the whole, but the sick that need a physician, right? How many of you here, how many ladies here are married to a man who uh, refused to go to the doctor? I mean, just refuse. You know what I'm talking about? Refuse. You know he needs to go, he ain't going. It's got to be like life or death before you actually get him to go to the doctor, okay? And um, listen, uh, you can't help someone who doesn't know they need help. And those who are whole or at least they have convinced themselves they're whole, they don't need a physician. But those who are broken, boy, they know. And listen, there are people in this world, they are broken. And they need Jesus. When I was in Bible college, a friend of mine, out on bus visitation, he walked into the home of a new family who ended up riding the bus. His family had ridden two or three times, and they finally invited him in the house. He stepped in, and they said, uh, we have a relative who is in a deep depression, a very dark place. While working on a roof, he fell off the roof, and he's paralyzed from his legs down, and he'll never walk again. And he's really lost his will to live. My friend said, he said, could I go in and could I speak with him? He went and he sat by that man's bed and the very first question he asked him was this. He said, if God could grant you one thing, what would it be? The man lifted himself up by his, on his elbows and he turned and he looked at him and he said, if there is a God and He could give me one thing, I'd ask Him to give me my legs back. My friend got a smile on his face and he looked at him and he said, God may not give you your legs back here on this side of eternity. But the message that I'm about to share with you, if you'll believe, He'll give you your legs back on the other side of eternity 
for all of eternity. And he walked him through the gospel. And that man with tears running down his cheeks into his ears and onto his pillow believed Christ to be his Savior. I, I don't know where that man is today. If, if he's passed on to heaven, he's not crippled anymore. Amen? And uh, listen, sometimes God allows great hurt and pain and hardship into people's lives so that they can be saved. Many of you remember Luke Ramirez and his family that attended here for a while. They're now part of Brother Kinsman's church up in Newtown. Back in 2019, I was uh, on a Thursday. I was working uh, at home on a Thursday just doing some woodwork for Angela. And Luke called me, and I looked down at my phone, and I said, Well, this is my day out of the office. You know, do I even really want to take this? It had been a long, hard work week, and I let it ring several times, and finally I answered the phone, and Luke said, Listen, I have a coworker, and this coworker is uh, came down with cancer uh, rather quickly, and he's on his deathbed. In fact, most of the Oxford police force has gathered in his home there in Beacon Falls. And they think he's down to his last little bit of life. In fact, he's under hospice care and he's not spoken to anyone in over 24 hours. Would you go by and would you pray with the family? And I said, well, I'll do it. So I ran upstairs and I got a shower and I got dressed and I got in my car. I lived living in Beacon Falls. I drove about seven or eight minutes and when I pulled up there were police cars that just surrounded this dead end street. I walked in the house, and uh, there the wife greeted me, and the, the, the home was just filled with police officers. And all of a sudden, I heard someone say from the room, or the police officer uh, who was dying, his name was Dennis, where Dennis was laying, they said, he just woke up. He just woke up. The wife went running in, and I followed her in there, and Dennis's eyes were wide open. He's looking around. And I walk over by Dennis's bedside, I put my hand right there uh, on the mattress. Was, he's on a hospital bed. So he was leaning up, and I looked at Dennis, and I said, Dennis, my name is Richard Lejeune. I am uh, Luke Ramirez's pastor. He asked me to come by and pray with you. It looks like you just woke up. I don't know how long we have, but Dennis, I want to tell you the most important story. I went through and told him the story of the thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus and how that one thief denied Christ and the other uh, thief uh, believed Christ. And I asked, uh, I only got him to say one word audibly the whole time I was there. I said, uh, I said, Dennis, do you know that you're a sinner? And he got a big smile on his face and he said, always. Everyone in the room laughed. I continued through the gospel and I said to Dennis, I said, Dennis, uh, take my hand. He reached over and he took my hand. And I said, Dennis, if you understood what I, stand what I have told you today, squeeze my hand. And he squeezed my hand as hard as his faint hand could. I said, Dennis, right where you're at, I want you to pray this prayer in your heart. And I began to pray. And all of the police officers around that room began to pray with me as I uh, led him through the sinner's prayer. And I got done with that prayer. And I looked at Dennis. I said, Dennis, squeeze my hand if you meant that prayer. He squeezed my hand. And tears began to run down my cheeks and everyone in the room is beginning to weep and cry and uh, I left that I prayed with the family I left that day and found out that about an hour later Dennis went back into his coma and Dennis never woke up from his coma Dennis laid there on that bed crippled but in his crippled state God took a very proud man and humbled him and he put his faith in Jesus Christ the crippled letter C we see the downtrodden 
Who are those that will end up receiving Christ? Who is the crowd that will come? Look at Mark chapter 9 and look at verse 21. And he asked his father, how long is it ago? Turn over to Mark 9. Let me give you a chance to get there. Mark chapter 9. Look at verse number 21. One of the joys of being in church ministry for many years is the longer you do it, the more experiences you obtain from doing God's work. You get to see God do some pretty miraculous things the longer that you're faithful to the work of the Lord. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if ye faint not. Look at Mark 9, look at verse 21. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since the, this, this came unto him? And he said of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. Look here. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You can hear the skepticism in the Father's voice. Jesus said unto him, If, he answers the man's if with his own if, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, remember back in verse 16 of our text, where it says that He bade many. Sometimes God allows pain in someone's heart and in someone's life so that He can humble their pride, so that they will come to a saving knowledge of salvation. As you see people that are struggling through life, you should use that opportunity to invite them to salvation. You should look at people who are hurting and say, right there, I think they're getting ready. I think they're getting close. Their life's falling apart. And we're not cheering for people's lives to fall apart. But what we are doing is saying, as their life falls apart and they're rejecting God, now I can swoop into the Gospel and I can invite them to the banquet in heaven to be part of the kingdom of God. The downtrodden. I would rather someone be poor on earth and rich in heaven than be rich on earth and poor at eternity. We see the crowd that will come. Number four, we see the compelling some need. The compelling some need. Go back to Luke 14 and look at verse number 23. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges. Look here. And compel them to come in. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Let me give you three words that will help describe what it means to compel. Alright? Compel means, and I would encourage you to write this down, 
Compel means to be persistent. Compel means to be persistent. Well, I invited my coworker to friend day, and, you know, he, he kind of, eh, gave me a positive noncommittal answer and didn't show up. Okay. Well, you didn't compel then. Okay. You invited. To compel means to be persistent. Hey, you know what? Uh, we've got, we've got, uh, we've got, uh, uh, we've got, uh, let's see, the Christmas drama coming up. Hey, here's an invite card. Isn't that a sharp invite card? Man, whoever puts the graphics together at my church, man, they do an A-plus job, don't they? Look at this. Hint, hint, it's Pastor Andrew. All right, hey, do, do, do a fantastic job, don't they? Uh, look at this. Wouldn't you like to come to our Christmas drama? We have uh, people who aspire to be A-plus actors. Amen? All right, right back here is three of our actors in our play. And let me tell you, they are working hard. Our choir, let me tell you, our choir, you've never heard a choir with a bigger heart for God than our choir. And they sing pretty okay too, all right? Uh, listen, our preacher, he ain't very much to look at, but he is passionate about the Bible and the Word of God. Listen, don't you want to come out, you're just going to be persistent. And if they don't come for, persi- uh, for, for that, then you say, listen, hey, New Year just came around. Hey, listen, we've got theme Sunday. Our church is going to have a new theme for 2023. And uh, here's been the theme for the last couple of years. Why don't you come with me and find out what the new theme is going to be? And then you turn around and say, hey, it's Easter. Hey, you know what? We got, where are you going to church this Easter? Don't you want to come to White Oak Baptist Church with me? Compel means to be persistent. Write this down. Compel means to be consistent. Consistent. Persistent. You continue to persist. And you continue to persist consistently. You never give up. Compel means to be compassionate. To be compassionate. Now, I have been uh, teaching this and preaching this uh, to a group of men in our church over the last five or six months. But boy, I think all of us need to, be, uh, need to hear this. Let me just say this. People do not care what you know till they know that you care. They just don't. They don't. I was talking to my mom at Thanksgiving and I asked her a question. I said, how much do you think respect of the preacher matters to people who sit in the pew? And she thought for a minute and she said, I'm not sure. I said, here is my theory. When you respect the messenger, you respect his message. When you don't respect the messenger, it's very hard to listen to his message even if what he's preaching is true. I have sat in churches where the pastor preached a fine sermon. I had zero respect for the guy in the pulpit. And you know what? I got very little out of the sermon. You say, well, that, you're just not a very good Christian. That's fine. I'll take, the, I'll take that. You're probably right. I'm probably not a very good Christian if I'm not getting anything out of a good Bible message. But when I don't respect the messenger, I have a hard time listening to the message. And what I'm saying out here is that people need to know that you love them. They need to know that you love them before they'll let you compel them. Jude, verse 22 says, And if some have compassion, making a difference. Who in your life knows, that isn't a part of our church, who in your life knows that you genuinely care about them? Have you ever stopped and said to your coworker, Hey, what's something I can pray for you about? You know, people don't get offended when you say that, generally. You got some coworker that's cussing up a storm? A lot of you work around people that cuss a lot, especially uh, Brother Vara. He works with a crew of guys. But I'm telling you, their language is just, <laughs> these guys, Kyle and 
Mike Rivera and Daniel and CJ. You, know, you got to keep these, make sure these guys watch their mouth, okay? Uh, but um, no, but some of you here, you go to work and you, just language all day, all day. You know, one way to curb their language is not by looking at them and saying, "You have a filthy mouth. You need to stop." A much better way is at, over, over, you know, lunch at break time. Look at them and say, "Hey, listen, uh, I have a prayer list." And I pray over, you know, my needs uh, and, and needs of people I love, care for. Is there something I can pray for you about? You know what they're probably going to start doing? They're probably going to start being a little more careful how they talk around you. You never had to say, watch your language. You never had to do that. People need to know that you care. How do we compel? We compel with compassion. One more. Compel means to use extreme measures. Extreme measures. Verse 23 of Jude says, And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Three years ago or so, we had the um, retired president of uh, my alma mater, Hiles Anderson College, and a good friend of mine, Ray Young, he came and he preached a revival from Sunday to Wednesday. Many of you may remember when Brother Ray came and he preached for us. Brother Ray has a very interesting testimony. He was born to a poor family in Louisiana. In fact, the same ministry that would reach my dad was responsible, or rather the same pastor that was responsible for reaching my father, also reached Brother Ray Young. Brother Ray... Brother Ray had a bus captain who went by his house ten weeks in a row with no answer at the door. Met him the first week. Ray didn't, little Ray didn't get on the bus. The next ten weeks, every Saturday, he went by and he knocked and he knocked and he knocked and he left a bus flyer with a note and he left a bus flyer with a note and he left a bus flyer with a note and he left a bus flyer with a note. And the way Brother Ray tells the story is that after he got that tenth note, he looked at it and he said, I don't know who this man is, and I don't know who this church is, but if this man from this church cares enough about me to come by my house ten weeks in a row and not get an answer, then that man cares for me. I'm going to go to his church. On that eleventh week, he... He got on the bus, he went to Sunday school, and he got saved. He would go on to Hiles Anderson College. He would be put in charge of the bus ministry where it would grow to where they would run over 10,000 bus riders on big days. I was a part of that bus ministry that brought in over 10,000 riders. Brother Ray Young will have seen hundreds of thousands of people saved in heaven. Why? Because in Edward Kimball kept going by his house week after week with no answer. Week after week. And he compelled and he compelled and he compelled. And Ray Young is going to be at the feast in the kingdom of heaven someday. Has God laid someone on your heart this evening? You need to double back on your efforts. And you need to get back serving them and loving them to a place 
They'll give Christ their heart. And they'll make it into the banquet in heaven. In the service of the King. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Some are compelled by compassion. Others are compelled by the fear of eternal damnation. Some we win to Christ by showing them the love of Christ. Others we win to Christ by showing them the reality of hell. Christian, are you doing all you can in the service of the King? Or are you doing just enough to skate by and say, I'm doing my part? Is your heart really in this thing? Or have you fallen in the trap of being a Christian that just goes through the motions? God needs to break our hearts again and again and again and again over a broken world that needs the Savior. Oh, I don't want to be guilty of just going through the motions. I don't think you do either. Sometimes we are the ones with the calloused hearts. We're not doing our part. The servant, the master has given us orders to leave the banquet hall and go tell our community. But we're stuttering and we're not sharing. Lord, I pray tonight that you would help us to be Christians that have our pockets filled with gospel tracts, the sermon of Jesus on the, the tip of our tongues, right under our breath, ready to share with anyone who will listen. May we be busy being your servants, Lord, not serving ourselves in our own interest, not building our kingdom, but busy building the kingdom of heaven. Lord, convict our hearts tonight. May we be busy in the service of the King. In Jesus' name we pray.